Hello, everyone. I hope you're having a great week. Welcome back to Contractor Evolution. My guest on the show today is Matt Reisinger. Matt's carved out a very cool little niche for himself and become one of the most recognizable thought leaders in the construction space. His YouTube channel, which has over a million followers, is completely dedicated to all things building science. And he's actually parlayed that into the creation of an entirely new platform called Build Show Network, which you should check out. It's picture Netflix, but all the content is for construction nerds. It's pretty awesome. His actual construction company, Reisinger Build, is one of the most sought after in Austin, Texas, where he lives with his family. And for the few of you who don't already know him, I'll link everything in the description so you can get acquainted quickly. Today's conversation in particular is about his entrepreneurial journey, why he chose this industry, how he built the construction empire and became the household name he is. We talk about some of the life-altering mistakes he made along the way, and I also get his take on the future of residential construction in North America. Just on a personal note, I'd like to say, like, I really look up to Matt. I deeply admire everything he's built, but most importantly, the values he stands for. For all his success, he is one of the most down-to-earth people I've ever met. I really hope you enjoy the Matt Reisinger story. You're listening to Contractor Evolution, where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. If you're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability, you've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school, and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. Matt Reisinger, the man, the myth, the legend, how are you? <laughs> I didn't know I was going to get that intro, Benji. Come on, man. Put you on the spot. <laughs> I'm doing great, dude. Coming to you from uh, my studio here in Austin, Texas. Also the home of Style Switch Barbecue, which you've indoctrinated me into, and I've told many. Style Switch is really good, and I'm doing another Texas favorite today for lunch. We have a client meeting going on uh, in a room behind me here, and we're having Torchies Tacos. Did you get that when you were down here? I've been to Torchies. I've been to Torchies. Next level. And Torchies has now expanded. I mean, before long, everyone listening to this podcast will have a Torchies in their town. They, they've they gone like viral nationwide. They're the new uh, uh, Krispy Kreme, it feels like, where they're just going everywhere. Listen, I'm here for it. I don't think it's fair that you guys have all the good food kind of relegated to one corner of the U.S., you know, these hot chicken places are starting to expand all over. I think barbecues next. I think Tex-Mex tacos are going to have their rise. So bring it, bring it up north, dude. I'm, I'm, I'm about dude, it. Dude, I don't think, I don't think barbecues coming up there, man. You're always going to have to come to Austin now, Style Switch. There's two locations, and when you go see their pits, I mean, they got people literally working all night long. I know. Uh, it's, it's just a religion. It's not a, it's not a franchise deal. You just can't do it. And on Torchies, you can. Because uh, you just need a good grill and a couple good ingredients, but if people are making stuff twenty four hours a day, that's not that's not a model. <laughs> not that a scalable are business. With. Yeah, no. I know. Well, that just that's a good yeah. reason for me to come back down and visit you again, um, dude. I'm so excited to have you. I'm really looking forward to this, and I and I know our our listeners are are um, excited to hear from you too. I think I think what we're gonna do today is just literally like the Matt Risinger story. I mean, you've done so much over Love the last. It whatever years and uh, become a figure, very notable. And um, I think we'd all like to hear kind of how it happened. So maybe we'll go back Sounds to great, the beginning, man. dude. Like tell us early days of your story. How did young Matt Reisinger get into construction in the first place? 
Yeah, I uh, grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm a Yankee, but I try not to tell anybody from Texas that I didn't grow up here. Married a Texas girl, but uh, grew up in Pittsburgh and watched, like many contractors, this old house all through the 80s. Uh, I remember watching Tom Silva, and you may or may not know Ted Benson with Benson Wood Timber Frame. I mean, these guys were like unbelievable. Uh, I couldn't miss Saturday morning at 9 a.m. when it was on. And I was so excited when VCRs came out because I could tape it and watch it later. Hmm. Um, but, you know, we didn't get a lot of access to to them. It was 30 minutes a week, and that was my only real uh, look into the construction world. But I loved it. Uh, my dad was in the – my dad's always been in the steel industry, retired a few years ago from uh, – what was in – was with U.S. Steel because, right, Pittsburgh's a steel town. Totally. Uh, lost his job in the 80s and got in a high tech, thankfully. But uh, so I went to college not knowing that that construction was a, was a career option. I thought I was going to be an engineer. Uh, I always liked working with my hands. And all through junior high and high school, I worked at this Christian ministry where I was a camper uh, called the Pittsburgh Project. And it was really cool. It was uh, Pittsburgh's an old town that had a lot of money in the 1800s and 1900s, but then the town just like went broke in the early 80s. Like things went real bad. So we had this stock of gorgeous houses near town. They were built really well in the 1800s, you know, kind of sort of brownstone-ish, but red brick row houses. Yep. And all of a sudden they were the slums in, um, in Pittsburgh. Very, very neglected neighborhood. So I grew up in the uh, kind of white suburbs, and here my cool church that I attended was sending us down into the very uh, African-American rough neighborhoods, and I friggin' loved it, man. I loved the culture. I loved the people. I loved these old houses. I loved working with my hands and realized, you know, if I rebuilt the deck on this old house that was like a total death trap for this elderly uh, woman who owned the house but couldn't afford to keep it up, like she was hugging me at the end of the week and like – I really made a difference in people's lives. And, and that feeling of I accomplished something with my hands that's tangible for someone and helping someone, uh, I really liked it. But I didn't know there was a career in construction. Mm -hmm. So fast forward a couple of years, I was always really interested in cars growing up. And I go to college and I almost failed out in my engineering degree. <laughs> degree. Differential equations, my D minus that I got as a sophomore, I was on the edge of being kicked out of uh, school and I had this real existential crisis, like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? Like, I, I'm not cut out to be an engineer, even though I like building things and doing things. Like, engineering is not the path for me. Huh. Uh, and so I switched my degree to industrial management, which I would found out was, like, basically, like, how to build cars in a manufacturing facility. Right. And, we stored it, and we studied the Toyota production system, which, interesting enough, if you kind of look at my building career, I've referenced – uh, a lot of my videos and and uh, my talks, how they how the Japanese taught us to build really good cars with their systems, with their processes, with looking at numbers and financials. Sounds a lot like BTA, doesn't totally. it, Benji? Uh, so I learned about about their systems. I love statistics classes, but when I was graduating, uh, I'm a '95 graduate from college. Uh, I was like, how am I going to get a job with Toyota? Like, there's no internet at this point. There's no I sent my first email uh, like as a senior in college and it was to who knows who and I never got a reply, right? This was like early days. So I sent resumes to 
the car manufacturers that were building in America that were from foreign companies, no reply. They're like, who is this idiot from some college in Pennsylvania? We're not calling this kid back. On the other hand, this big national builder came to my campus and I was like, oh, I don't I don't want to be a framer. Like I'm not I'm right. not that good with my hands. And I don't really want to do that for a living. Like I want to I want to build cars or build something. So my buddy says, Hey Matt, go to this this open house they're having on campus where there's a bunch of three or four uh, people that graduated from the school two or three or four years ago, and they're going to talk about their job as superintendents at this construction company. I was like, oh, I'll, I'll go. So I hear these uh, you know, 24, 25-year-olds talking about their job. They, they drive a pickup truck. They're on job sites all day. They have a career path at this company. Uh, they're managing, you know, a million or two dollars worth of const- or two million dollars in construction. They're dealing with the homeowner. They're dealing with the plumber. Yeah. They're doing like all this stuff. I was like, oh, this is just like building a car, mm-hmm. and like there's a career path. I didn't know that. Like all I knew was Tom Silva. And so uh, afterwards, I was super pumped. I, I came up to the uh, the recruiter and was like, dude, I don't have an appointment tomorrow, but you Get got to interview me. This is this is me. Let me in. I'm knocking on the door, uh, and sure enough, I got a job with those guys. And you mentioned something uh, about I absolutely um, loved it. You mentioned something about like the tangibility factor. Have you have you thought about that over the years? Like the role mm-hmm. that the your ability to reach out and touch your work plays in sort of the deeper meaning of it all. I think it's huge, Benji, and I think it's a big reason uh, or a big ability for us as contractors to help fill this gap of people that we need to get into our industry because all these other, not all these others, a lot of other industries are very unfulfilling careers. Right. You know, even, even some of my friends that are very, that have done very well for themselves from a monetary perspective, freaking hate their jobs and it's a drudge to go to work. So for me, you know, it's only been honestly the last 10 years that I've done well financially uh, and have kind of caught up to some of those people, but I love my, I love what I do. It's incredibly tangible. And when I leave a job, you know, I always say I built the house, right? I, I didn't really build the house. Right. I didn't use the saw or the hammer. These tools behind me are are uh, uh, are not my toolbox. They look very that I'm clean. Using during, they look they're a little too clean. But the point is, I I was involved in that process, and I. Uh, you know, my name's on the door now at this point as the builder. And so I'm physically impacting people's lives and I'm building uh, houses that will be around for more than a generation. In fact, some of the houses I'm building are going to be around for multiple generations. I think – And that's about as tangible as it gets. And I I think – maybe people think I'm naive or optimistic, but I think the pendulum is going to swing back over the next five to ten years as people become mm-hmm. totally screened out. Like I have so many friends that went the white collar path and did a bachelor's degree and then they did a CFA or they did a master's, they did whatever. And they've ended up like they've got great jobs, but there's a level of just sort of exhaustion and fatigue from the Mm -hmm. disconnectedness to the action. Like what's actually happening here? And I think that that's something I've, you know, 
I'm boring our listeners because I've said this in other shows before, but I'll say it again. Like I really think that that's something to to take pride in and capture and use almost for leverage when you're trying to recruit talent, when you're trying to build a brand, when you're trying to do make moves in your business. I think that's like mm-hmm. the, one of the best parts of this. I mean, ultimately, our work matters, Benji, and and is a benefit to society. Uh, and there's a lot of industries that I'm not sure that you can feel that way and walk home at night. And, and, uh, and I think that's a basic human need, just like food and and shelter is to feel like your life matters and what you're doing is worthwhile. Totally. Uh, And, uh, and honestly, whether you're building, uh, multi-million dollar houses for rich people or you're building starter houses, your work matters. In fact, I had a quick phone. You mentioned, uh, Ben Bogey a second ago. I had a phone call with him yesterday and Ben's got a, a range of stuff going from million dollar to six million dollar houses, and we were talking about. And I've got I've got kind of the same range going on. And what I loved about what Benji said was, you know, yeah, we're, we build for some really rich people that we build some really really good houses. But sometimes I don't feel like they appreciate it. Like they're kind of virtue signaling that they've got uh, a net zero house, that they've got this huge solar array, that whatever. Sure. But you know what, Matt? I really love the fact that we're. Uh, making supply chains that we're teaching people how to do this. And I said, I totally agree. I mean, Cadillac was the first manufacturer to include an airbag. And now your crappiest Kia you buy has an airbag, right? So we need to pave the path for high performance building. Right. Uh, And so there's something to be said about building in all different price points. Now, we do need more affordable housing. We do need builders like uh, the builder I visited yesterday in Bastrop, this guy named Scott True, who builds spec houses for $350,000 that are built incredibly well. Mm-hmm. That really resonates with my video audience mm-hmm. is look, he, this guy's using the same Matt Reisinger methods, but not building one to $5 million houses. He's building 300 to $500,000 houses with the same methods, the same materials and a really thoughtful way of putting it together. Well, which it's just all at the very early adoption phase of things. And so when the, when the technology is still new and the supply chains aren't built, yeah, like there is a risk of it being something that's um, only available to the elites and the rich. But that's that's a very transitionary period. You know, like yep. at, at, at one point, electric cars were this extremely rare thing. Now they're pretty commonplace. I think with high performance stuff, and we'll, we'll get into more of that later too. It's like you guys are, like you say, paving the path. Uh, 20 years from now, you know, net zero could be a viable option for lower income projects. Like, like I, 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 totally. I don't think that's unreasonable. I think it's the way it's all going. You guys just happen to be at the helm of it. So when you, okay, yep. so you, you talk to this recruiter, you're like, get me in, like what to take us, take us from there. What, uh, did they hire you? What, what happened next? Yeah. So they, so they hired me as an assistant superintendent. Uh, and you know, I had all this construction knowledge, but it was like drywall and, decks on low-income houses for people that weren't paying us. It's not like I worked on a like a real construction crew, right? I was doing charity work uh, basically all the, for many, many years on really bad houses. So anything we did was, uh, was appreciated. So then I get this job as an assistant superintendent. I didn't know two things about construction other than what I'd learned on the job and maybe watch, watching this old house. And we were building, honestly, not very good houses. But I thought they were the best houses in the right. world. And then a couple of years later, I start reading fine home building. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like who gets to build these? Like these are crazy cool houses. Uh, you know, my finished carpenters would 
trim a house in like two days because there was so little uh, to do and the, and the doors were all hollow core cardboard and you know these houses were, I was building were getting built in 60 days start to finish wow. just super crazy fast times cycle times so I'm, I'm kind of reading fine home building then I start reading journal like construction as a 20 year old and I'm like this sounds really like how do you how do I get to do these houses right. these look really cool and I'd always had a very entrepreneurial uh, background. Like when I was in high school, uh, I always had a lawn mowing business. I was never afraid to work hard because I always wanted money. Uh, you know, I wanted to be able to put gas in my parents' car if I had a date that weekend. Uh, I wanted to be able to pay for uh, a restaurant if I was going to ask a girl out. I wanted to right. have the latest uh, Sony Walkman. And my parents weren't about to buy it for me. So it was like, look, if I want it, I got to earn it and do it. And so, uh, you know, that desire to own my own company was strong for me. But the other thing that really resonates with me is when I was working for that corporate builder, I did not like a lot of their policies. And I felt like that company was so focused on shareholder value that they gave two sense about their employees. And that's not 100% true, but it, that's what it felt like for me. Like, for instance, they told you, oh, we're going to give you a truck allowance. It's going to be $300 a month. And so I bought a Nissan truck as a 22-year-old used and, and was trying to figure out, okay, what's my payment? How am I going to afford this payment? What they didn't tell me was taxes were going to make that uh, $180 after tax. So I'm immediately $100 underwater uh, on a salary of, I think I was making $22,000 a year as a salary. So here my monthly take home is like $1,200. And by the time I pay my apartment and my truck payment, I've got $200 or so left. a month to live on, right? $250. Uh, and so it, it just felt like, you know, why is this giant corporation using me uh, to to make their shareholders richer that always bugged you I, that kind of that that like top-down corporate structure your corporate structure low, really bugged me. low on the totem pole that just never jived for you so here's a quick example my first boss joe out of college i love joe i wish i could say his last name i don't remember it but joe would visit me on my job sites after i became a full-fledged superintendent and he would come about once a month or maybe twice a month on a on a thursday or friday take me out, buy me lunch, walk my jobs. And I always felt like Joe really cared about me. And like Joe cared more about Matt than just what Matt could do for the company. Now, certainly he cared about that company cared a lot about metrics and profit. And, mm -hmm. you know, this house is take is going to close in 65 days, Matt, and it really needs to close in 62 days. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of stuff they were they were doing. But Joe cared about me as an individual, bought me lunch. Joe leaves about a year later and the new boss comes and we're going out to lunch, and he he goes, well, of course we're going Dutch, right? And I'm like, what? You know, lunch is like eight dollars at this place. Are you kidding me? I don't have eight dollars. Like five dollars Subway is about the best I'm going to be able to do. And he wouldn't buy me lunch. And I was like, dude, if I ever own the company, I'm buying lunch. Right. And it's the it's the the other thing that uh, that that corp another boss did to me later on was I only got two weeks of vacation, uh, and they tracked it like a hawk right down to the minute and down to the down to the you know quarter day or something yeah. stupid like hey you left early that's a quarter day off you know you needed to leave early to go to whatever so every year when i met with my boss at this other company he would say well matt 
I know you want that extra week of vacation. What are you willing to give up to get to get three weeks of vacation? And I'm like, well, I mean, I know you're going to give me a 2% annual living increase, but I'll give that up if you'll give me that extra week of vacation. The time was worth more than the money to you. For sure. And and uh, it bothered me that every year that's the same friggin' conversation I had with the boss. So three years in a row, I never got a pay increase, but I got my third week of vacation, which was more important to me. And it was one of those like, if I'm the boss, I'm going to do this a little differently. And those are those are policies that I've really kind of railed against and done the exact opposite on Mm -hmm. now that I'm the boss. Like I always tell my employees, if you're ever out with me, I'm buying. Don't even think about buying your own lunch. Hmm. Right. You're working. We're talking about work. Uh, You know, I'm buying lunch. So, you know, we buy lunch at least two or three days a week here at my office. And my people really like working here and feel like we care about them more than just their output. Do you think that generosity uh, like that, just like very, like you're almost kind of, you're, you don't just sort of pick it up casually. You almost make it a policy. Like you're quite explicit about it. Hey, this is how this works here. Do you, what, what effect sure. do you think that has on the vibe around the building or the tightness of the group or what, I mean, it's, it's, it seems like an obvious thing to do and yet lots of people don't. What, what's it created culturally for you guys there? Well, a couple of things. Number one, I'm not the highest paying builder in town. Uh, there's a bunch of builders that that pay their project managers more overall. And I kind of figure, look, I'm, I'm doing team building. I'm buying lunches. Uh, we do have company trucks uh, for about three quarters of my staff, not everybody. Uh, and so we do some things that are a little differently. And we actually have an unlimited vacation policy as well. We don't keep track of vacation. Now, if someone really truly turned it into unlimited, they would be fired, which I've had to do twice <laughs> over the years. <laughs> Uh, but that was an attitude issue, not a vacation issue. Uh, but it's those kinds of things that make this company that I've, uh, been able to create a great place to work and people really like working here. Yeah. Uh, and I also tend to hire entrepreneurs a little bit. So I have spawned off quite a few other builders over the years who have left me and I knew that they wouldn't be with me forever. You know, they, I kind of said, look, as long as you, you tell me you're going to be here at least, you know, three years or three to five years or some number like that. I'll train you on how to on all my methods and materials. I'll, sh- I'll let you look under the covers everywhere. And if you want to go off and do your own thing, I totally get it. But in the meantime, I'm going to get a great person. And I, I can think of, gosh, seven or eight people that have left me uh, to do their own thing and have been very, very successful at it. And I'm OK with that because that was me, frankly, at the last company I worked for, which is quite a few years ago now. What do you say to entrepreneurs who kind of have this mindset of like, well, I don't want to show them too much. I don't want to teach them too much. Or even in some extreme examples, I don't want to even hire this person in the first place because they're going to take my quote unquote trade secrets and all of my knowledge and they're going to become a competitor. How do you sort of dismantle that belief? Well, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, Benji, but I've always felt like there are no trade secrets, number one, in this business. Uh, and I would also tell you that everyone who's left me uh, is not talking bad about me, and it does actually the opposite, typically, <laughs> where they're like, oh, they're, you're interviewing with those guys? They're really, really mm-hmm. good. Uh, and I worked for them for a while, and they're just like they seem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've gotten that feedback from prospects, too, that have, that have interviewed against other competitors. Yeah. Uh, in the marketplace. Plus, unless you're in a town of, you know, 10,000 people, 
there's plenty of work to go around if you're in any kind of major metro. And uh, not every client fits with you, your business model, your personality. Uh, so, in, you know, unless you're trying to build $100 million a year in business, mm -hmm. uh, there's plenty of fish in the mm -hmm. ocean. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you just need to keep fishing. So at what point did you kind of take that entrepreneurial leap? Like when, when was Rising or Build created? Uh, you know, take us back to that moment. Yeah, so uh, uh, I graduated from school in 95, worked for another big national builder or for a big national builder for seven years, did a bunch of jobs. Where was that? Really, uh, Washington, D.C. Okay. Uh, assistant superintendent, superintendent. Uh, then I actually had a really interesting stint with them, which is probably one of the best things I've ever done in my career. I was an uh, HR recruiter, college recruiter for two years, um, which helped me learn interview skills, uh, which helped me – uh, learn a couple of different companies that do like personality and critical logical thinking testing that we use on people that are interested in working here. Uh, that was one of the most incredible things as an entrepreneur to be able to work in HR and recruiting for two years. Mm. And then I sold new homes to them for a couple of years. And then I left because my wife uh, needed to do some training in her in her career path West Coast. So I moved to Portland, Oregon. Uh, left that company that only built East Coast and uh, worked for a semi-custom builder in Portland for three years. And that's where I really got my love of building science because when I moved there uh, 2001 or two, 2002, after 9-11, after 2002, I moved there. The mold crisis nationally hit. And I don't know if you guys experienced this in Canada, but insurance companies were paying for mold remediation. And all of a sudden, like, on the national news, uh, Tom Brokaw is talking about black mold and children's health, and it was really scary. And we got handed a bunch of lawsuits right away because we were not very smart, smart about water <laughs> intrusion. Uh, you know, I was building in a rainy climate where we let the houses get soaked yep. during construction, and then we immediately put plastic vapor barriers up and plastic house wraps. And then all this mold crisis hits and we're like, oh, my gosh, you know, we're getting sued. And we also built a bunch of fake stucco houses called Evas. And we had we had all these facades like rotting houses out. And so here I was this young, like 30 year old builder. I'm dealing. I was at the time I was a uh, production manager. So I had superintendents underneath yep. me and I had the uh, warranty department and we get handed these lawsuits. And my boss, who's the VP of construction, is like, Matt, you just deal with these lawsuits for now. Like, forget uh, production manager, your lawsuit guy. Uh, <laughs> great which promotion. Was great yeah. and terrible all at the same time. <laughs> my wife was working crazy hours. She's she's a doctor and was getting her training. So I was working, you know, 80 hours a week dealing with homeowners who thought their kids were going to die uh, with the guys in the Tyvek suits and the Whirlybirds and all these weird devices that they're monitoring air quality and – I just learned a lot about building science. And, and for me, it felt like, oh, my gosh, the world is falling apart. Like all these houses we've built are just a mess. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going on and why. Mm -hmm. And so I dug into building science not because I cared about building better houses because I just wanted to get out of these lawsuits right. and not have people sue us and not have moms you know, feeling Screaming that their kids were going to die in the house we yeah. built. Uh, that sounds like a so, really grim couple of years. It was a hard couple of years, but you know what? To the credit of that builder, 
that builder was doing 75, 100 million a year. It was locally owned. They were doing a lot of work. Uh, he totally changed his building practices. Mm. And we were the first builder to ever use a rain screen in Portland, Oregon. And we were the first builder to really go uh, to a to a very modern system of house wrap and sill pans and all these other details, which are really standard practice today. And we've actually moved beyond some of those details, even to higher performance. Um, but it was really a lot of fun. And so then uh, we get pregnant with our first kid and we say, well, do we want to move back east and I'll go work for that other builder? Or do we want to move to Texas and I'll either get a job with another builder or I'll do this uh, thing that I've wanted to do for a long time, which is start my own company. And uh, I interviewed for another builder position. They didn't hire me. I had this existential crisis like, should I even be building? Like, I don't know. I've been doing this for 15 years. Should I do something else? So I actually interviewed for a drug rep position uh, really? at one time because I thought uh, maybe I should be doing something else. I don't know. I got my first kid in the way. Also, it was a weird time. I was living in my in-law's basement. My wife was pregnant. I had no job. I had no car because I used to drive a company car. And my wife's grandfather had died recently, so I drove a 1984 LeBaron convertible. And here I am, like, living in my in-law's basements as a 32-year-old. I'm like, what am I doing? What have I done with my life? I'm an idiot. I'm a loser. <laughs> Things had really unraveled. It was, You're in the in-law's basement. It was bad. I had, I had a whopping 40 grand in the bank because I uh, had sold my house and made some money in Portland. And I was like, you know, I think I really want to finally do my own thing. I'm going to start my own company. How old were you? You said 32. I was 32 at the time. When you just like took yeah, the plunge it, and said, "I'm going to open my door. I'm going to open my own doors. I'm not going to work for someone." Austin seems like a good place. What the hell? Let's go for it. 18 years ago. Yeah. Wow. So 2005, the market's cranking in Austin. I, I'm a builder, but I have no idea how to get clients. I have no idea who the subs are. And I thought, well, I'll build a spec house. You know, in this. Close in neighborhoods, these houses are selling hotcakes. Right. Uh, so we're just printing but, money. This will be easy. This will be easy. No big deal. So I hire an architect and I get a builder set. And this is an architect that's well respected in the building science world because I knew I wanted to build a good house. And there was lots of really bad houses being built in Austin in 05, like, you know, houses that today are, are getting remediated for rot and mold when they finally do open up the walls. And so I built a really good house. And I quickly realized, holy crap, it is really hard to make money on a spec house that's built well. Because uh, number one, I, I didn't know my systems. I'm still figuring everything out. I'm still doing accounting at night, which I'm not good at. Uh, you know, and I finished the house. Uh, it took way longer than I should have. And uh, long story short, I sold that house and made like $30,000 in uh, the 18 months it took me to build this house. And I'm like, gosh, I don't know about being a builder. Like I'm barely making more than I was as an assistant superintendent. Right. Right. So then I start another spec house kind of in the, in the interim. And it was an interesting house in that, um, it was real modern and I found another architect that was really well regarded in, in terms of his kind of style. And I also kind of fell into realizing, gosh, people really go on these, uh, American Institute of Architect tours a lot in Austin. And, and I uh, meet a young uh, architect who says, Matt, you know, you instead of just getting the general public to know you, why don't you just market your business to architects? 
And so I start forming this business plan like, oh, that's really smart. There's only, what, 150 architects or something mm -hmm. in Austin? I should just make sure that they know I'm a good builder and then they'll refer they'll funnel you the work. Right. So I joined uh, – I've already been a Home Builder Association member. I joined the AIA as well as an allied member and I meet a couple architects that I click with and now they're like sending me work. And I also have – the spec house that I'm under construction and I start another spec house and now the economy in 2007, you know what's about to happen right. here. Uh, the economy just totally blows out. And Austin was later than most, you know, like Detroit and D.C. and all these other bigger metros. Um, they fell out faster and I was like, well, maybe Austin will hang on. Uh, and so the the big spec house that I was building that I'd started a while ago – when we come to the closing table, the clients are like, you know, Matt, the market's not as good as it once was. I don't think this house is worth one point whatever I had it under contract for. I think we're only going to give you, you know, 75000 less. They're like negotiating at the closing oh table for goodness. a discount. Oh. And at the time, I brought on a uh, a buddy that, that uh, I said, look, why don't you be a 50-50 partner in the business and we'll you'll manage half the jobs. I'll manage half the jobs. Now the economy's crappy. We'd started another spec house. So I said to him, man, I don't think this is going to work. Like I can't even feed myself. And we'd really not taken a paycheck for months because we're, we're just trying to keep the lights on. So we made like, again, $40,000, let's say, at closing on this house <laughs> on a $1.5 million oh. house. And I gave him the check and was like, you take this and sign this piece of paper that says that you don't own anything. I'll take the name and the business, and I'll take the debt of this other spec we've got going. Let's part ways. So I'm back to a one-man show, and I've got a spec going on uh, that's like in foundation, and the economy just sucks. And I own two other lots at this point that I bought that I was going to do future specs on. One of them I thought I was going to build my million-dollar house for my family on. Like, oh, this is going to be great. I'm gonna. So I paid an architect. I don't know, 25 or 30 grand to build this plan on this awesome, huge house with an office out back. Thank the Lord I never built that house because I would have been so far underwater. Totally. And then kind of 09, 10 happens. Economy's still not getting any better. And here I've got this finished spec house. That's just sitting. It's like sitting. $7,500 a month in interest oh. charges. I can't sell the thing to save my life. And, and at this point now... I have zero savings. I've spent every dollar. I have a credit card that's maxed out. I have a second credit card that's maxed out. My wife is working three or four days a week, and every dollar that she makes is going to pay our mortgage. I mean, I'm like right to my eyeballs in debt, and I and I can't see any way out of it. I'm, to be honest, Benji, my faith is the only thing that got me through it. I literally was praying every Thursday. God, I don't want to. I don't want to go chapter eleven. I don't want to, uh, you know, forfeit on this debt. Help me to pay it, and help me to make payroll and and everything I need to pay tomorrow on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and God provided. I mean, this is a faith story as much as a builder story. Like I barely squeaked by, by. the skin of your teeth. Yeah, and to be honest, I learned a lot of lessons during the recession, including I I honestly – one of the big lessons since this is podcast style and is more intimate, one of the big lessons I learned has nothing to do with business. It was all about uh, – Matt Reisinger of that time was very prideful and felt like I deserved a, a big house like my clients and I deserved this lifestyle. 
uh, and I should be successful as a builder no matter what I do. Uh, and I and I was very materialistic. I wanted to live in the super cool neighborhoods downtown. I wanted to, hmm. you know, build a fancy house for myself like my clients had. And I feel like the recession was God's way of being like, dude, life's not about the house you live in or, uh, you know, all these materialistic things. Like you need to take care of your family first. You need to be a good dad. Right. You need to build a business that's going to be around for a while and not one that's on the edge of death. Right. Uh, and so I just I just learned I was very humbled to be honest during this no time kidding. it was rough on me yeah uh, and and being in debt and having those phone calls come in from you know for instance I had two or three subs that I had to call on a on a very regular basis and be like hey Bert I know you've got a forty thousand dollar invoice into my office for this spec house I can't pay it I will pay it I've got five thousand dollars this week that I believe um, I'm available to pay you and that'll take you down to 35. I'm going to send this to you and I'm going to send you the, the showing that I still owe you 35. Uh, and you know, I'm going to get you paid as soon as I can. And I'm not skating out on this. Mm -hmm. And he stuck with me. And to this day, Bert still does all my, all my work. Uh, and there's two or three others that were like that too, that I like drug it out for months on paying them. And I would have to call them very humbly and be like, man, I do not have the money to pay you, but I will pay you. I am not going to skate out on this. Mm. Uh, you know, I know I owe you this money. And long story short, uh, I kind of grew the business during this time. I went after only paying clients. I said, I'm not, I'm never doing a spec house again. I work, I really focused on my business, on getting paying clients in the door. And I also really focused on keeping my lifestyle as trimmed as possible. Mm -hmm. Because I wanted to pay off all my debt. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of did the Dave Ramsey method of like, you know, look at every penny, be very cautious about spending money. And in 2015, I paid off all my debt. Uh, the only the only debt I have today is my – I still have a little bit of mortgage because I did build a house for my family finally. <laughs> uh, but I've got like a $450,000 note on my house. Other than that, everything that I own, I've paid for cash. And my wife and I said to said to each other, like, look, let's not do anything unless we can afford it to pay cash. Yeah. Uh, right. And so same with my business. Like, I haven't bought a truck. I haven't bought anything on credit for my business since about 2013, probably. Uh, and not having that debt means that I'm not a slave to somebody. Uh, and not doing risky things that could put my business in jeopardy mean that I, I sleep generally pretty good. Now, yeah. Trust me, there have been some hard clients and some mistakes we've made over the years. I can tell you about a, uh, three or four other mistakes I've made that cost me in these six-figure issues. Um, but I'm not going to make the spec house mistake again. Um, that lesson about pride and ego obviously had, you know, there's like echoes of the lesson 10 years later and things you do differently and how you make decisions and how you approach work mm -hmm. and life. So in many ways, you know, I'm, I'm sure you look at it as a blessing. Do you think sure that, do. um, young people today, men and women in the entrepreneurial world who, um, are hungry and motivated and believe in themselves, all of which are good things, by the way. But do you think sometimes I'm kind of I'm kind of talking about myself here, like <laughs> I get really impatient sometimes. I'm like, I want it now. <laughs> you 
know? Yeah. And yeah. I hang out That's like right. I'm I'm like I punch I'm punching way above my weight class. I get to talk to people that are 10, 15 years older, way more successful, you know, who are totally in a different stage of life. And I have to watch myself talk. A lot of the times I'll just be like, you know, how are you not here yet? How have you not done X yet? How do you not own right. this asset yet? And right. um I find it hard, like just managing that mental chatter and being patient is really, really challenging sometimes when you want a lot. It is. And, you know, in maybe not as much in the last five years, but in previous years, we made it as Americans pretty easy to buy stuff on debt and pretty easy to get uh, what you wanted. Uh, you know, every car care, every car company in America for a long time was like zero percent financing. Sure. You know, we'll we'll you get your. $80,000 truck, no problem. You can pay us off over seven years at 0% interest. You're like, well, why wouldn't I do that? But you know what? It's just <laughs> that stuff weighs on you. And that is that you end up becoming a slave mm -hmm. and you don't want to be a slave. You want to be a master. Mm -hmm. You want to be the master of your own destiny and living a lower lifestyle, which is, you know, there's plenty of other gurus that talk about this in all kinds of different industries, but living that lower lifestyle now means that you can live a better lifestyle later. And mm -hmm. so we need we need to be a little more future oriented and a little less now oriented. Uh, and that's a big lesson that I learned and have had to be smacked down several times over the years to say, I really want that, uh, you know, multi-million dollar, million dollar house as a 33 year old when that doesn't make any sense. You're not and, there yet. You're not there yet. And, and you know, Benji, I'm 50. I built, I built and moved it into my, uh, you know, this sounds braggy. I'm not trying to be, but I spent a little over a million on my new build. Uh, but I did it as a 49 year old after I've been in business for 16 years or 17 years, and I lived in a 70s remodel until that point, uh, and it was a perfectly acceptable 2,000 square foot house, mm -hmm. and my wife and I were very happy there. And and several times since we've said. You know, this this house that we built is super awesome, but it doesn't make us any happier right. or doesn't uh, change our life or uh, our outcome or our longevity of life or any of those things really yeah. compared to our old house, which was just fine. And in fact, our kids really kind of didn't want to leave the old house, even though it was literally across the street. Now, a year and a half later, it's a different story. We've forgotten all about the old <laughs> house and we love it. Don't get me wrong. But houses, cars. Uh, these trappings of American life, they don't make you happy. Yeah. Uh, and your clients that you build for, uh, no matter what, you know, no matter what, uh, you know, economic level you're building in, they're no happier than you are just because they have cool projects that you built for them. And in fact, I would almost say now that I've known a lot of rich people over the years, I would say generally speaking, rich people are less happy right. than me and my employees and the subcontractors I work for that go home to very modest houses in 10-year-old cars uh, and have an extra $600 in their bank account at the end of the month. Totally. I I'm perfectly happy with that. So my my 1998 Toyota 4Runner that leaks a little bit of oil is cool. That's what you're saying. <laughs> uh, the 4Runners are – that's a little extra cool. cool. That's cooler than most yeah. people's cars. That's for sure, Benji. But you don't – I mean, you know, if you had a new Bronco or whatever the cool version of a 4Runner is today, nah, would you be any happier? No, not, no, not, not really. No, I know. No, and, you, and you'd, have, you'd have a lot more stress in your life too because you'd be making a payment 
or you'd be thinking, gosh, I could have used that 50000 or $80,000 uh, as an asset for my business to help make me money in the future. Totally. Uh, or, or whatever. I mean, new cars are the worst investment so ever. Bad. I'm pretty happy with the $6,500 I spent and I got winter tires with it like six years ago. That's okay. Well, I'll, we'll roll with that for another decade and maybe one day when That's I'm right. rich, we'll upgrade to a new one. What That's is, right. um, but sorry, go ahead. I was going to say one quick side note though. Uh, I'm not saying, though, that that it's wrong to want some of those things. You just can't place them in, in a higher priority than other things that are more important. As a quick, for instance, I'm wearing my dream watch that I wanted for years. I bought it as a 48-year-old. Right. Even though I, I really wanted to, to wear the Omega Seamaster, which is the James Bond watch, for like 30 years. And I would look at it all the times I went to IBS uh, in Vegas, they have this Omega store that I would always go to and I'd try it on. And and I was like, I just can't afford a $5,000 watch. I'm not doing this now. Right. But I bought it for my birthday a year and a half ago when I did have the money. And so it's not wrong to have nice things. I think the problem is when you place those in a higher priority than they need to be in your life. Or or when you – or when you um – you get them much sooner than you're entitled to. I mean, you had to hang in there for a couple decades longer than you may have thought of when you were 27 to get the watch. And now you have it. That's right. And, you know, all that it, all that probably seems like a wash. But I think that there's a message there for young people, which is it does take time. Have some patience. That doesn't mean be lazy. Right. Stay hustling. But it's no. the delayed gratification. The, the key word there is delayed. It takes a second, man. Like just, you know. Uh, and, and businesses are, are pretty similar to people, right? When you're, when you're a, a five-year-old person, you're just barely out of toddler stage. If you're a five-year-old business, you're barely out of toddler stage. You have a lot to learn still. You have a lot of mistakes and a lot of trips. You have a lot of teeth to lose. You have a lot of bruises to make. Uh, and my business is 18-year-old. I'm just barely an adult at this point. Right. 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 Uh, and I'm hoping that my business is around for a couple more decades. Maybe my kids take over the business at some point. We'll see. But I'm still in the scheme of things, a pretty young business. Uh, and so we need to align our expectations. It's a really healthy message to convey. I think that um, the fast paced sort of social media driven world that we live in where everything is 60 seconds or less makes building great things seem like this incredibly fast overnight thing. And of course you see these, you know, quasi fake gurus who have become bajillionaires or, you know, Bitcoin winners or whatever, what, how, whatever form it takes. And there are many, I think has diluted the masses into thinking that greatness is something with shortcuts. And I just don't think totally. it is. It's not. Right. No, it's not. And and honestly, the nightly news will talk about how Instagram affects 15-year-old or 13-year-old girls. That also affects 35-year-old men and women. Totally. Right? Yeah. Uh, and we can we can be just as deluded to think that that person that we're seeing on Instagram uh, is is crazy successful. They have no problems. I'm the only one who has any issues. Here's a quick story about that. About seven, eight, ten years ago, there's a builder in my marketplace who's like a gorilla, like credible builder, been around 30 years. Uh, from the outside, you just think, gosh, this guy's got it made. The website's incredible photos. Well, I get called on a takeover call from an architect, like a multi-million dollar project that they're firing their builder and they want to take it over. 
I, I was like, oh, I'm not used to doing that, but I'll I'll humor you, Mr. Architect. I'll go check it out. And I go, and the job is beautiful. Like, it's in the framing stage. The framing looks great. The WRB looks great. I'm thinking, why are they getting fired? Like, this isn't a mess. Right. Well, come to found, it's this builder's job. Uh, and the owner and the builder got sideways on who knows what, and they're firing this builder. And, uh, and it reminded me, it's the first time I really realized, like, or had this like aha moment, like I've been idolizing right. this builder as like, oh, they've made it. They're the pinnacle. They'd have no problems. You know what? They have the same issues I do. They sometimes hire clients or get hired by clients that, uh, you know, don't see eye to eye or uh, don't care about you or don't remember conversations or whatever. And here it is, this builder who I think of as the like, King right. Flawless. is getting fired from a job. Flawless, Championship right? teams lose games too, you know? Like, That's exactly right. So That's exactly it's right. good. That's a great way to say what, it. So, okay, what does Rising or Build look like now? Like fast forwarding out of that really tough patch, which you, it sounds like you yeah. hung in there, made a few good decisions, got yourself out of, you know, now yeah. whatever, 13 some odd years later. What's, what's the shape yep. of things today? Well, I'm a little weird compared to most builders in that I have two companies, Benji. I have a video production company, of which you're involved with, uh, uh, Build Productions, which is the uh, the originator of BuildShowNetwork.com. We've got 12 uh, people, including uh, BTA, shooting videos once a week, uh, helping elevate the industry. But we're also a little like Netflix in that, uh, you know, we we publish videos on a regular basis. We produce it, our own content uh, with creators like you guys. Yeah. And now we sell ads on that just like YouTube does. And so it's this really kind of cool side business that I love because the margins are great. It's less risky than building. Uh, and uh, at some point, maybe worth something more the more so than, let's say, build you know, building a, a building company to sell, which I'm not doing. I was going to ask you more about that later, but let's hit it now. So if there's a builder listening right now or a carpenter listening, right, like just someone who's not yet acquainted with Build Show Network, um, just give give them a bit of a rundown, rundown of what's on there, the type of content, why you made it, um, who you're trying to educate, just all that stuff. Uh, we could spend an hour on this, but the quick and dirty is – when I started in social media in kind of 07, 08, I did it because I was a young uh, builder who was starting my company. And I heard this this marketing guru, David Meerman Scott, speak. And he wrote this book that's still a great book. It's on like edition five called The New Rules of Marketing and PR. 17 bucks on Amazon. Go get it if, if you haven't. And it's a great marketing intro book for a young company or an old company to say, how can I market my business without spending a bunch of money? And that really resonated with me. And I basically used social media. For me, it was blogging and then it was YouTube and actually some other Facebooks of the time. And I said, look, I'm just going to be intentional by um, kind of putting this out there so that even though I'm a young company, um, the public, when they Google me, finds more than just a website with pretty pictures. Hmm. Um, because when you see a website with pretty pictures and that's it, there's an immediate distrust of people in this industry, right? And no one says, oh, I really hope my daughter marries a builder. Uh, you know, we're, we're not known as the most honest, most trustworthy, the best people on earth are builders. Uh, and so by having a social media presence of any variety of any amount, 
you're able to put yourself into a position where people get to know you and decide if they like you and they like what you're doing with your business. And so as a young, uh, early on builder, I was putting YouTube videos up, I was blogging, I was putting some Facebook posts up, and I realized very, very quickly that video connects people. Mm. You know, you and I are on a video call right now, and you're 3,000 miles from now, but, totally. but I know you because I can see you and hear you talk, and I know your mannerisms, and I've already made a decision within a couple minutes if I like you and want to work with you, whereas if I don't know you, Benji, and I just go to the BTA website or builder.com website for this builder, you're like, oh, I don't know. I mean, everybody's got pretty pictures, right? What's it going to be like to work with them? I don't know. Well, I like them. Are they going to be shady? You know, whereas if you have a video, if you have multiple videos, a lot of videos, um, pictures of under construction, not just finished houses, mm -hmm. people go, I like this right. company. I like what they're doing. Uh, and I, early on, I went to meetings with people when I would have like, a dozen YouTube videos out or 30 YouTube videos with, uh, you know, a hundred subscribers and people would act like I was their long lost brother. Like, Oh man, it's so great <laughs> to meet you. You're, you're uh, gosh, I watched a couple of your right. videos last night before the interview. You know, you got recommended by Peter, my architect over here. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. And I'd be like, what? Like, how do you know me? Again? Yeah. You watched a couple of videos. Yeah. Well, people decide whether they like you or not. Yeah. And so it eliminated 30 minutes of get to know you, and I don't know if I like you, by just having some stuff out there. And so that's a that's a missed opportunity for a lot of building companies. So you started doing um, you started doing like the Matt Risinger YouTube channel. What year was that, by the way? Like, would you remember the date you posted your first? Video? 2008, July oh, right. 2008 is my first video. And, and it was and it was and it really was like. Um, it was sort of a, a business um, pursuit to some degree. You'd read this book. You're like, this makes sense to me. I'm going to put content out there so people can find me and know me and trust me. That that really was the impetus. It was marketing for my business, 100%. Uh, although anecdotally, it was also – I was a little upset that there wasn't a lot of good information for about building in the sure. South uh, from the national publications. They've totally changed these days, but – of that time, the national publications really were focused on northern building. Mm. There was not much info in the south. And, you know, I'd just gone through this big crisis in the north. So I thought, well, I don't want to go through another crisis in the south. I got to make sure I research how to build a good house and I don't have problems. Uh, and so I was – I had a twofold deal. I had this deal of like I need to, I need to get this content out on a semi-regular basis so that prospects who are searching my name will have will find something that, that uh, allows them to get to know me and see that I'm a smart builder and that I'm worth hiring. But also I had this desire to build better and share my my wisdom. Mm -hmm. And that's honestly still why I think Build Show Network is a success. And frankly, that's why BTA is a success in a lot of respects is that uh, you guys put out plenty of free content uh, you share your personalities, you take the time on a weekly basis to make a video about better business practices, and you share that with the world absolutely free. There's no paywall, there's no cost, uh, there's no, well, you got to sign up for this if you want this. Uh, <laughs> Give me $99 result, for my secrets. Yeah, no, we don't Right, we don't really exactly. Do that. And, and, and as a result, people get to know you and really like you. And then when they do finally call you, 
it's a it's not just a warm lead it's a hot lead volcanic right? yeah is what we say yeah, they it's are a hot. whole it's yeah. a whole different it's a whole different level and that's what i tell all my smaller builder friends that are starting out i say look you should start an instagram feed uh that's the place to be kind of still today uh and you don't need to post very regularly once a week totally works there's nothing more than that uh and if you don't want your face in it fine but at least give your personality uh, and all you need to do is talk about things that you're interested in. Not everyone needs to be interested in building science like I am. Maybe they're really interested in the aesthetics of construction. Maybe they're really interested well, but a lot in of the precision are. A lot of, of people are, Matt. You just hit a million subscribers on YouTube, whatever, a couple months ago. Um, did you ever think yeah, that crazy. like nerding out about build build science <laughs> on a camera would become this big? No, no, that's for darn sure. I'd never expected that, Mendy. Yeah. Not at all. It's crazy. It Not really – I mean in hindsight, things make sense. You you go, well, actually, yeah. hold on. There's homeowners. There's DIYers. There's architects. There's tradespeople. There's apprentices. There's business owners. Why wouldn't they want to watch 40 minutes on – I mean, some of the stuff Super you make, it's stuff. so random, dude. Like, it's so know, down the I rabbit know, hole. We're talking about. But also, if you think about over the years, how many people were like, I was watching HGTV last night, and I loved that episode about the $5,000 kitchen remodel. No, it's the opposite. Every contractor in the world hates those shows because they feel like they're lying to the public. I know. In fact, I, I, I put a post on Instagram a couple of days ago that was just a story and a guy at the gym who's not even a builder was like, hey, I saw that post or that story of yours about the Wall Street Journal on the weekends has this mansion section. And they had this celebrity kitchen remodel that they said $250,000 kitchen remodel. Then you read the article and they said the island in the kitchen is from Italy and it was $138,000. And I'm thinking to myself – how is it possible this is a $250,000 remodel in the kitchen if the island was 140000 yeah. And so I put it out and I was like, come on, Wall Street Journal. Are you turning into HGTV? Like, can I trust anything you say if this is the kind of stuff you publish? Like, that's so untrue. It's not even funny. And and my buddy was like, can you not do a kitchen remodel for two fifty? I said, no, you can. The point it's is, not if you're island, island yeah. <laughs> right? You're you're not going to have an Italian island that's fifty percent of the contract price. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's funny. And that 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 post picked up some steam, eh? It did. Like random people have been talking about yeah. it, which I thought was funny. Wall Street I need, Journal. I need the Wall Street Journal to call me. Wall Street Journal's like, who's this Matt Risinger guy? We're getting some heat here from Austin. <laughs> getting some heat. Yeah. So you know what I'm super curious about? Because you met you, you said that well. So it's like, I'm kind of unique. I've got two different businesses. And you really do. I mean, I've been to your building. Um, it's like half production company, cameras, lighting, studio, like the one you're sitting sitting in now. Ha yep. and, and like and like creative types too. Um, like re a really, mm -hmm. really neat and dynamic team that's kind of focused on that. You, and, then, and then the other half is like this like super polished, super professional construction company Thanks, that's Andy. still Appreciate that. that's still making um, a whole bunch of beautiful houses in in Austin. By the way, guys, I will I'll link I will link uh, the Risinger Build site. You should see some of the stuff that do. It's really architectural. It's Thanks, really man. really Appreciate cool. It. So I'm curious. Like what, every builder, we got pretty pictures. We got, you got the pretty <laughs> pictures. You got the exactly. So I'm curious about how you kind of met. Like we're able to get the the construction company, which is 
which is not, let me say this, is not the cleanest, easiest, most scalable model on any level. It's just fire. Mm -hmm. it just even with systems in place, it's still always going to be a challenge. Like, how did yeah. you get this thing set up well enough to create space for you to become the content guy that you are now? Yeah. So uh, a big part of that is I have a 50% partner in my construction company. Uh, his name's Tim. He's a I kind of think of him as my older brother. He's about he's actually 15 years older than me. Uh, and Tim really is the day to day builder of my building company. Uh, and we have 17 total people in the building business. Uh, we do about 10 million in revenue on an annual basis, usually like 750 to $5 million style jobs that take us 18 months to two years. So we're, we're kind of a little bit of everything. We do remodels, we do new construction. Uh, and so we, we kind of think of ourselves as old school GCs. Everything's cost plus. Uh, you know, sometimes we build with really detailed plans. Other times we get started before uh, we're out of uh, design development, let's say, and we're building it on the fly with a great architect or designer or homeowner who wants to do that and wants to get started quickly. So we have a, we have a kind of an older model, I would say, in the building world. Um, but it's worked really well for us because we really vet our clients and look for clients that want a builder they can really trust and handle things for them and be their um, honest, reputable, uh, cost-plus style builder to do whatever they desire to do. Uh, and then I've, I've kind of over the years funneled my uh, profits on that home building company to make less and build my video production company. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's kind of why I've maintained that 10-ish million dollar size. To be honest, I think over the coming years, uh, I might scale that back to more like 5 million a year uh, or 7 million or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I could see us at some point moving towards design build. Cool. Uh, where we try to bring some of that design in-house. We... Uh, our 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 listenership are are going to be you know they're business nerds so I've got a, I've got some questions I want to rattle off about rising or please build. what is do it. what does your org chart look like you say you have seventeen people can you just kind of give us rough numbers as far as who does what there yeah so I've got a a, a COO that's paid half out of my video production company and half out of my building company mm -hmm. uh, he's kind of a cross between a CFO and an operations guy. Mm -hmm. And he really manages all my uh, back office staff, uh, accounting, uh, APAR. Uh, I have a controller that also is 50 on one company and 50 on the other. Uh, and my build, I think I said my building company is 17 people. My video production company is, believe it or not, at the exact same number right now, 17 huh. people. Uh, although a good majority of those, not about half of those work remote because uh, I've got some people around the country that work for me. Uh, full-time but work out of their houses hmm. which is kind of interesting uh, and then I've got uh, I can't remember the exact number I guess I've got a mix between uh, project managers and assistant project managers and we must have seven or eight or so uh, I've got one person that's mainly a full-time estimator but they also do a little bit of project management mm -hmm. uh, I've got um, two people in accounting that do AP and AR. And again, we split them between the two companies. And um, I'm trying to think what else I've got out there. Oh, I know. I, I haven't mentioned this, but I actually have 
a third company that's my labor company, and we have uh, six people that work for that company. Hmm. Uh, it's we call it Build RH. Uh, we used to call our our company is incorporated as Reisinger Homes, but we have a DBA as Reisinger Build. I rebranded a couple years ago because my Instagram handle was Reisinger Build, and it was doing really well. Yeah, yeah, might as well. <laughs> and we got rid of the Homes name, which felt more like a spec home builder. Right. So we've got five people under Build RH. We all wear the same logos. We all work out of the same building. Uh, we're all on the same team. But it's much easier if you have a separate company that's a labor company that builds the home building company. So that uh, you know, if I'm if I'm billing someone at let's say forty five dollars an hour, but they make uh, twenty two dollars an hour or whatever the difference is, the client just sees an invoice from one company to the next, and it's a cost plus build, so they get to see those invoices, and then we disclose in the uh, original contract mm -hmm. that there's a relationship between the two companies, their shared ownership. And we also disclose what our rates are uh, for that current year for both companies uh, or for, yeah, for both companies. Because my project managers bill hourly uh, and then my labor team bills hourly as well per project. Uh, and then we also have equipment that's owned by Build RH uh, that we rent to our jobs uh, and build to our clients. So that's all built through my, my labor arm company. What kind of, um, what kind of tech stack do you guys use on the construction side? Do you, do you have a sort of a few different softwares you guys are running? Yeah, we've been on QuickBooks for quite a few years now. Uh, prior to that, we were on a pretty interesting program that we kind of grew out of called custom home builder solutions, CHS. I've got about five or 600 clients. That's an interesting program that works really well for us, but we kind of grew out of it a little bit. Uh, and then we use Builder Trend uh, for project management and client interface. Yeah. Uh, and we've kind of had to do a few workarounds to get that those two to to work super well. But at this point, it's it's rolling pretty well. One of the things, and then we also use a couple other small pieces of software. One thing that I know someone listening in their truck right now is going to want to know about because this question comes up all the time is the relationship building with architects thing. And you mentioned that yeah. earlier. Yeah, that's how a great do you, question. How do you do that well? Well, for me, I always tell people, look, it may or may not be architects, but you need to figure out who are the people that will refer you business. Uh, and typically, it's not a huge group of people. And let's figure out who those people are and let's do a really good job of getting to know them and being top of mind for those people. And this is probably a bigger conversation than we have time for. But I'll give you a quick for instance. I have a, I have a builder friend in Houston uh, that a couple years ago, as he was starting his business, he said, look, there's... There's only 50 or 75 architects that uh, I feel like do the kind of work that I would like to do. And so he uh, used his kids over the course of a summer to track down all the info on these and give them a, like a, a CIA style deck on each one of them. Like, here's the principles. Here's all the info I could get about their email addresses. Uh, here's what they operate in. Like this real comprehensive, like 75 firms worth. And he sent all 75 of them a, a letter or an email, I can't remember which, must have been an email, and said, I would really like to take 15 minutes to get to know you, uh, to bring you coffee and bagels one morning. Is there any chance I could do that? And he got like 20 of them to call him, email him back, and he made 20 appointments. He went out to those 20 appointments, and sure enough, he got you know four or five that he clicked with, that he liked, and are referring him business. And the other 50 that wouldn't, he started calling them <laughs> and, you know, hey, I'm trying to reach John over there at the office. Yeah, 
blah blah blah. I'm new to town, and I want to I want to just take ten minutes to bring bring you guys some Starbucks and uh, and uh, a scone, and just say if I see if I could say hi. You know what? That guy in a very short amount of time has built a really good referral business because he's not afraid to pick up the phone and do some old school feet on the pavement uh, prospecting. Don't underestimate that works. Don't underestimate the power of a good ground game. Hundred percent, hundred percent. People always, and that works just as well today as it did in the past. People always expect to hear some silver bullet or some tactic that they've never heard of, and it's always disappointing. <laughs> it's like, no, dude, just do the thing that you know you should have done, but have blocking avoided. and tackling. Just it's blocking and tackling. Exactly, it, it really yeah, is. To, to throw another football reference in. <laughs> yeah, dude, I'm a football reference. Uh, that's just all I do. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> this this whole podcast is just football references. What are your thoughts on? I mean, it's so easy. What are your thoughts on? Um, I I was talking to a, a builder this week. I was like, Matt's coming on. Whoa, you know him, our, our friend Mike. And I was like, well, what what should oh, I yeah. ask him? And he's like, so okay. What Mike. do you thought? Okay, do you think that high performance building is worth it? And I think there's kind of a couple ways to frame hmm. that question. Is it worth it from the standpoint of the average consumer right now? And then is it worth it from the standpoint of the business owner who would need to make substantial investments in their training, their staffing, their equipment, their supply chain to do it? So comments on kind of where this is headed and and quantifying that from the homeowner's perspective and then the entrepreneur's. So for me, the, the reason why I got into high performance management, high performance building was risk management. Uh, you know, we were getting sued and I needed to reduce our risk. And I would tell you that is still 100% applicable today. Risk management is the reason why you need to learn building science and you need to build better houses. Because if you build standard co-built houses, those are risky houses. And you will have some problems in those houses. And honestly, even as, as advanced as I am, uh, I've done some dumb things and it's caught me. Hmm. Uh, and as, maybe even especially because I say I do build high-performance houses, but not every house is a, a super high-performance house. So the times when I've dipped back and done what someone wanted to do that wasn't as high-performance and they had an issue, I got caught with my pants down, uh, right? I should know better. Uh, and and I didn't speak up loudly enough or didn't object enough to say uh, I'm not going to do that. Uh, the aesthetics won over the performance or whatever it was. And, you know, whenever your client does something that's risky, if you are complicit in that, then you're in a position of risk as well. Mm -hmm. It's just like the builder that, that goes down on their specs because the client says, we got to save 10% on this or I'm not going to build it. Well, where should you go down on that 10%? It should be in countertops. It should be in tile. It should be in appliance specs. It should never be in envelope air sealing, waterproofing details, none of those things that make a difference when, when it comes to water, air, or vapor should be touched. You should, as the builder, decide what is the assembly, and then this is the assembly, and anything else you want to change, absolutely, we can totally change that for you. That's But when it comes to the assembly, you need to be the risk manager for you and for your clients. That's not the answer I was expecting. It's super interesting. You'd be like, you know... <sighs> I thought you might be like, well, they, they they make for a great Instagram and it's good for marketing. Maybe that's just a reward for good behavior. You're you're saying the really important factor for you is risk management and not being caught 100%. with downstream issues because something was built shoddily. Yeah, or even not even just shoddily, but like if you lower any performance standard, 
in any way, shape, or form, if it doesn't perform well, you can get caught with your pants down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it it happened to me, and I, I'm not – unfortunately, I can't tell you the full story at this moment. Hopefully, I will in, in the future. <laughs> we'll uh, have you back. But I had a client that wanted to do something that wasn't a super high-performance detail. It looked super cool. Uh, I went along with it, and I told them the downsides. Uh, but when a problem occurred with it, which I knew could be a problem, mm-hmm. uh, they acted like I it wouldn't – they had no idea that I talked about that. Yeah. Uh, and so there's multiple lessons to be learned there. Like, uh, you know, make sure you sign disclosures. If you, if you do something you don't want to do, you need to have that in writing and all kinds of things, uh, that I made mistakes on. But ultimately I, I built a house that had a lower performance standard on something. It didn't perform as well as they would have liked or they expected, even though we talked about it. And then I was at fault, uh, and I paid for it mm-hmm. very expensively. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So when you when you think about your client's risk and you think about your risk, whatever your client's risks are, are your risks too. And don't forget our, our clients sometimes sell the house a year later to somebody that has zero relationship with you. And if you have the smallest problem, they're going to assume that you're an idiot and you're a shady builder and they're not going to trust you at all to fix it. They're just going to call their lawyer straight away. You, so we need to be really cautious the way we build today. You can be caught in seriously vulnerable positions as as a home builder, a construction company 100%. broadly speaking. But that's unique to what you guys do compared to other trades and other blue collar businesses. I mean, you can really be in a jam. And for uh, sure, I, I think and, that's and honestly, that's why you've got to get your systems in place. Uh, you know, here's here's a quick example that I can talk about that that's a direct call to uh to get uh bta systems in place about uh seven or eight years ago i built a house for a cost plus client that was an attorney uh and i've built several houses for attorneys that have been great well this attorney um signed a cost plus contract we acted like cost plus we got a little loose on change orders because it was cost plus right? right well we get to the end of the job and the clients had a giant change in their financial uh out output mm-hmm. slash abilities. I can't get into too far deep, but we all know people that have had change in their sure. financial status. And there's a $250,000 bill uh, at the end on a cost plus contract that's over what the bank loan was. Well, the the client's an attorney uh, and basically says, look, I'm not paying that uh, and go away. And I say, well, I could put a lien on you. I can do X, Y, and Z. And the guy's like, look, I'm a super high-powered attorney. I can make this incredibly painful for you. And you could drag this out and spend $100,000 to get 80000 out of me. Uh, or you can just go away. And ultimately, I called my attorney. And this is a longer story than we have time for. But the, the bottom line is my attorney's like, he's not wrong. Uh, you know, even though you've got this, 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 yeah. and this in place, he's not wrong. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he can basically go high and dry on this uh, amount of money and make it super painful for you. And it's a decision for you to make. Like, do you want to spend X amount of dollars with no uh, idea of whether you get it back? Yeah. Or, do you, or do you at this point in your business just want to let it go? To say nothing and of the I, mental health that you would go through for however long that takes. I mean, there's so many other costs you can't even quantify. So I left like a $250,000 bill on the table. And of course, it's a longer <laughs> oh, story. And you you could say you could lean and you can do this or sure. that. It's it's an hour long story. Yeah, no, but the bottom time. line is, 
I lost 250 on that uh, because my systems weren't as dialed in as they needed to be. Yeah. And just because you have a contract that says cost plus doesn't mean anything. Right. Uh, you've got to have everything dotted, everything crossed. You've got to really have your systems in place. And fast forward a few years later, all the mistakes we made on that, we've done a totally different <laughs> different job uh, in in multiple areas. But it's really – it's something that I've learned the hard way over the years – is like, look, when you make a when you make a mistake on a project, you've got to memorialize that uh, so that you don't ever make that mistake again. It's that whole definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Yep. You know, take that those lessons that you've learned and codify them in your company and make sure that you don't make those again. So, you know, I lost giant amounts of money when the market changed with a spec house. We don't do spec houses anymore. <laughs> I lost uh, a giant amount of money on change orders and bad systems uh, at that time. We've got lots of systems in place that don't allow us to do that. Uh, I have contracts that have lots of good language from every mistake I've made uh, over the years as our disclosures to make sure that people do have those disclosures, that they're signing them. Uh, every single page gets signed on those disclosures. I mean, it's like... All the mistakes that I've made in 18 years in business are on my disclosure at the yeah, end of the yeah, contract yeah, yeah. that we specifically talk yeah. about. So uh, and honestly, we have a pretty lengthy builder-oriented contract. Uh, my state, Texas Association of Builders, happens to have a promulgating contract, which is really handy. But it's one of the it's one of the ways that's a litmus test for me to know if they're a good client. I try to send my contract fairly early. Uh, in the process of being interviewed because I want to know, are they going to bleed all over my contract? Because we're going to say no. Yeah. You know, if they have one thing they want to change, no problem. But if you have 30 things you want to change, yeah. we're probably going to figure out that we're not a good fit for right. each other right away. Right. And I can tell you at least four or five clients over the years that I really wanted to build the house and they bled all over the contract. And we said, gosh, we just can't negotiate on this. And then I found out later the contract they hired got fired, got sued, got <laughs> bullet in all kinds of trouble. Uh, total dodge on the bullet yeah. for sure. Yeah. So the, these are the lessons that you learn after being in business for a long time. Uh, and honestly, it's, it's the reason why uh, for many, many generations we looked up to our elders with gray hair with respect. And only when you become the older gray hair guy do you realize, gosh, I should have paid more attention. And honestly, Benji, the Build Show Network, my videos, what you guys do, is in a bit of a direct uh, opposition to cowboy, uh, we're going to do this and I deserve this. It's Look, there's lots of people that are wise and that are willing to give the younger generation uh, their wisdom so that they don't make those mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I've appreciated that so much by, uh, I've got kind of three mentors for me that are all 15 years older than, than me. One of them's my business partner now, but there's two other builders that are 15 years older than me. Uh, they helped me a ton. Uh, and I avoided many other $250,000 mistakes by following their advice over the years. Totally. Uh, and that's, and that's why we want those younger builders uh, to join the Breakthrough Academy yeah. uh, and to have that wisdom from an organization like yours uh, to take your systems and your processes to the next level. We're very philosophically aligned in terms of how we'd, how we'd like to see this little sector of the 
Western economy go, you know, like where you, mm-hmm. we kind of approach it from different angles. You're really yep. on the job site, <clears throat> boots on. We're talking about, um, you know, the envelope, the process, the very intricate systems that go into high performance building. And we're sort of the equivalent for the high performance business that makes that possible. Right. So I think that's why it's always that's been right. such a great kind of pairing. I'm, I've got two it's more risk management. I've got two more questions for you here. You're a very, very plugged in guy in the space. Obviously, the construction business, the content side of things, you're at shows all the time. You talk to entrepreneurs all the time. When you think about the future of residential construction in North America, what opportunities do you see and what big challenges lie ahead? I mean, when it comes to opportunities, that's the thing I love about this industry is we we may go make some videos about 3D concrete printing or some other cool tech. But there's a reason why Katera went out of business, for instance, and maybe I'm referencing something obscure that none of the listeners know about. But like for years, for decades now, they've been saying, oh, the building industry is going to get totally revolutionized by technology. And, uh, you know, you're going to be out of a job, Mr. Builder, Mr. Framer, Mr. Whatever. You know what? That is yet to happen. <laughs> and even this company named Katera, which was funded in the multi-billions of dollars, went out of business. Uh, and I can I could probably name uh, I've seen a slide from a presentation I went to not long ago, like 30 other companies that were the Kateras of their day that were going to revolutionize this. This is an industry that really involves boots on the grounds and people doing work. And in my foreseeable lifetime and your foreseeable lifetime, probably in our kids foreseeable lifetimes, it's still going to require boots in the ground and people doing work. And we've got a housing stock in uh, North America that's always going to require maintenance, that's always going to require upgrading. And honestly, we have a lot of formation of households that need those uh, places to live. So there's certainly going to be a lot of big builders that uh, build those, but there's always going to be a place for a smart, hardworking entrepreneur, just like your listeners, just like our friends, uh, yours and mine, Benji, that are out there. And there's always going to be a niche for somebody who can build a good house uh, and deliver to clients uh, something that's different and better mm-hmm. than what's on the marketplace. So the opportunity is frankly limitless. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the beauty of our industry. The, um, the challenges. Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, go ahead. I was just going to say. I mean, we all know the challenges. We've been talking ad nauseum about how we need young people to get in the industry, but. I think that we're seeing a change in that. Uh, you know, incidentally or anecdotally, I've seen a lot of trade programs that have come back uh, from extinction and are starting to happen again in high schools. And I'm hearing lots of stories about people that went and got a college degree and worked for Hertz for a couple of years and were like, this is terrible. No offense to Hertz. I actually use them as my <laughs> rental car company. But like, here's a quick for instance. I, I'm talking to a guy now about a job with my company who will be kind of my producer, special effects, research assistant. Uh, And he has a master's from the UT Austin McComb School uh, and has done all kinds of jobs. But currently, he's a machinist up in Connecticut working with his hands and loves the precision of this machinist uh, job that he's doing. He's a 25 or 26-year-old. And so can I offer him what he should or could be making as an MBA, which is probably $250,000 a year or something? No. I'm offering him basically the same type of job uh, price category as a project manager who works for me, and yet he really wants to do it because he wants 
to work with his hands. Mm-hmm. He wants to make a difference in the world. And he doesn't want a typical job in corporate America. And that's our lure. You know, that's why people will come to our industry is because we offer something different. It's a different lifestyle. That's a different level of satisfaction uh, and, a, and a different feeling when you get home. There's a pride when you get home when you're dirty and you need a shower uh, and you got something done that you don't get when you work at the rental car desk. You know, everyone right now is um, <clears throat> not to use clickbaity language, but everyone is sort of t- terrified. Some people are excited. It's a very polarizing topic on sort of the AIification of society in the workplace. And mm. again, whole other conversation. But I'll I'll tell you what is not going to be done by Chat GPT anytime soon. <laughs> the roofing. complex problem solving required on a messy job site with weather conditions and a picky client and emotional emotional uh, roller coasters and all that stuff. That you know. <laughs> Put your kids in trades. Like that's that's where the value is going to be. I'm very bullish on yep. that. I could be wrong, um, but I don't. I don't think I will be. And it's it's nice to you know. I'm seeing some trade programs come back. I'm seeing you know some shop classes reopen in high school. It's just like music to my ears, and I think it's so desperately wow. needed. And I my thing that I tell myself when we say at BTA all the time is like hang in there. That like I said earlier, the pendulum is swinging back, and um, that's you know that's a good segue. Like maybe we'll close on this question, Matt. Like if you were to, if you were talking to a young hustler inside a, you know, blue collar business, whether it's construction or it's painting or it's a specialized trade or whatever, but you know, this, this young man or woman is hardworking, good head on their shoulders, wants to find success in this avenue in particular. What advice would you give that person as they set forth down their career? I mean, I think the biggest advice I would say, and this is my story in a nutshell, is be be long-term thinking, not short-term thinking. Uh, think long-term about your life, about your family, about your career, and don't be short-term thinking. I mean, that, that $80,000 diesel truck, you don't need that. You get that at some point, sure, if you want it, but you don't need that today. Uh, that million-dollar house like your client lives in, maybe you'll get that someday for sure. There's nothing wrong with desiring that, but you don't need that today. What you need to do is put a good day's work in today and feel good about that and go home and go, you know what? I had a great day. I got things done. Uh, I'm healthy. I'm strong. And I've got a bright future in front of me. Uh, and this industry will will absolutely reward the hard worker that does it right. And the last thing I would say that, that I think has been my secret to success has been be a constant learner. Uh, always look to improve your skill set and your builds. So whether you're a carpenter, a plumber, a builder, a roofer, learn new skills. You know, if you're if you're a roofer doing asphalt, figure out on the weekends how to do metal. Uh, you know, if you're a builder building regular performance houses, upgrade one thing on the next house, maybe that you don't even get paid for, and make sure the client knows about it and that you did it for free. Hey, I learned this uh, way to air seal between concrete and framing. And I know it wasn't your budget, Mr. Client, but I just wanted to know that I spent $200 on this detail. Uh, And I think what it's going to do is going to give you this benefit. It's going to help bug seal in this area. So you won't have to use pesticides uh, as much to keep the cockroaches out of your house. Uh, Do that on that job. And then the next job, do something that plus something else. That's what I've done over the last 17, 18 years I've been in business. I've tried to build every house just a little bit better. 
And am I building passive house on every house? No, by far not. <laughs> I mean, my house didn't even get rated, but is really the only house that's gone to that uh, level. But I'm building way better than code and way better than most houses. Uh, and I'm also really being focused on risk management. So if you if you upgrade your skill set and think about how to upgrade yourself, those opportunities will come. Uh, be patient. Keep working hard. Keep your integrity. Uh, be honest in all of your dealings, and your reputation will precede you, and you will find those great opportunities. I love it. I really, really love it. Um, guys, just listeners, I'm going to leave a link in the description to Matt, like Rising or Build, so Matt's construction company. I also really want to just give another plug for Build Show Network. Like if you're an apprentice, a business owner, uh, you're, you're, you're just starting out in trades or construction. This is a really, really cool channel full of a whole bunch of contributors. Matt's one of them. We're one of them. Um, but there's a ton of others and they've got, they're growing unbelievably qu quickly with grand, grand plans for the future. Maybe just give a few words on, on what you guys have in the pipe, uh, with build show and, and what we can look forward to over the next couple of years. What's your vision there? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you, that made me think about what you were just talking a second ago is, you know, for those younger project managers, let's say in your company, for the, for the owners listening, uh, I hear anecdotally, a lot of times our videos get shown during weekly meetings. Uh, you know, just like you have a five minute safety talk, you might have a 10 minute, uh, video talking about a building science, uh, uh, topic, let's say, or a detail or something that you can do better at your homes. Uh, but in, you know, I would encourage your young people who work for you, don't watch Netflix at night or at least cut back <laughs> on your Netflix. Watch Build Show Network. These are your uh, peers that are maybe 10 or 15 years older than you. Let's say if you're a younger uh, builder, younger apprentice that are sharing their wisdom and knowledge. Uh, and a ton of it is out there, both on the business side from BTA and uh, on the architect side, we've got Stephen Basic doing architecture. I've got a carpenter. I've got a drywall contractor. I've got a, a mechanical contractor. Uh, I've got an electrician now. We've got several builders in all kinds of different climates sharing their wisdom. Get on there and, and actually spend the time upgrading yourself and learning. And a couple things coming up you'll see from us, Benji, in the not-too-distant future that work, we're working on is, for instance, I have a Building Science 101 series That'll be about 12 hours worth of video uh, intended for the younger person on the job site uh, to say, hey, what do I need to know about building science? And we're also going to have at the end of each module uh, a short test that says, hey, did you understand this? Did you did you capture this so that we could issue you a certificate at the end? And hopefully in places where there's licensure, that will be uh, able to be used for your hours uh, for licensure, but also uh, to say that you are building science 101 certified. Yeah, uh, I think that's a resume builder too for those younger builders to say, hey, I, I've gone through the 12 hour uh, BS 101 class and here's my certificate. Just like you might uh, get a cert for your OSHA 30 class and that's a benefit to a future employer. Yeah. Uh, so that's those are just a couple short things. Uh, plus you're gonna see us in more and more places and I can't say too much about I that. Know. Keep it under wraps, uh, but, but the vision coming. is grand and it's really exciting. Yeah, we got a lot. We got a lot of cool stuff between now and uh, this time next year. I've got three or four initiatives that are huge that I'll be really excited to announce over the next twelve months. Um, 
let's leave it at that, Matt. I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing with our audience kind of how you've built up, what you've built up. We'll have to have you back. There was about three or four other podcasts that we could have had tucked in there. Yeah. Um, we could make a whole one just about my giant mistakes over the years. Giant mistakes, best barbecue <laughs> in Austin. Um, we could get into a lot of stuff. Anyway, dude, I can't wait to see you again, either on the road or I come visit you there. You come up here. Um, that'd be great. We love what you're I doing. Need to get up there. Yeah. You come up for a bike ride. It's really nice up here. Oh man. That'd be <laughs> awesome. I actually, uh, I have another reason to get to Vancouver in the not too distant future. Yeah. So good. Well, keep us, keep us in your mind. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, really appreciate your time today and, and we'll connect again soon, Matt. Thanks, Benji. Appreciate it, brother. Thank you to uh, to all the listeners out there. And uh, come check out my podcast, too, by the way. A quick plug for uh, for my podcast, The Build Show Podcast on iTunes. And, of course, you can watch it on buildshownetwork.com. Thanks, Benji. Catch See you ya. later, brother. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of Contractor Evolution. Uh, if you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it. 